Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. Katie is out for this episode, but she'll be back next week. And today we are going to be talking about Absalom, Absalom, which is William Faulkner's 1936 novel about big spooky house and a sister fucker. <laughs> so yeah, we're doing uh, we're doing sister fucker fiction again yeah, for the uh, eighth time. Yeah, I said last week that the fail son was uh, basically the, the subject of the show, and that is true. But incest, and specifically, I think sister fucking is is, is the rather yeah. <laughs> log running uh, theme. We should say the themes of this show are feckless boob goes on a trip, and I want to fuck my sister. <laughs> <laughs> that and that is the novel. That is what the and novel that is. That is the novel. Congratulations. I hope you're taking an AP test in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Write that essay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like why Absalom Absalom? For me, it's like one of my easiest choices. Faulkner was my guy for like a long time. I mean, like tied with other guys as my guy. Like not anybody creepy, but yeah. Um I really like I just love his books. I think lots of dorks get into Faulkner because the writing really is beautiful and you can live in someone else's bad brain with them while they contemplate like how to fuck their sister or how to castrate themselves or whatever fantasy of decaying masculine landowning they're indulging. Yeah. All true. All, and all through Faulkner's unmistakable narrative voice. Like I, yeah. that, that is what the, the, as I like all of his characters do sound the same. It's super compelling, but it's like all yeah. of this is Faulkner brain exploring the shit. You know? Oh, then I'm gonna have to make you read uh The Sound and the Fury, because they actually sound very different. Okay. All right. So yeah, which I have read a long time ago, but may, maybe that uh this is just kind of my take on Absalom Absalom that I've grafted on Donald. No, no, fiction. you're right about Absalom Absalom. Let me make that very clear. This is like <laughs> he is in he's doing like the ma- he's doing the master guy, mastery of the prose. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter who is talking. So I read my first Faulkner was well, I everybody reads a rose for Emily in high school and it fucks you up, but you don't know why. And then I read As I Lay Dying my freshman year of college, and I was in uh, As Soon As You Tell Me Your Mother Is a Fish, I Am Reading the Rest of Your Books. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I am like, I am naming my son Vardaman and Daryl and Jewel and Quentin and just (laughs) those are what they're named. Joe Christmas. This is my son, Joe Christmas. <laughs> I do love Daryl. Uh, I mean, it is really Daryl, but it's it it's is really Daryl, but it looks like Daryl. And it's yeah, it's written kind of in the sort of like dialect form, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like Maury, which is pronounced Murray, which sounds way less talk show. Um, <laughs> and Faulkner's a guy that people who are like, I like good books. I'm Harold Bloom or whatever. Like, I know. Shut up. There are a lot of interesting places to go that are more thoughtful about the world into which these books are introduced. So like, we can't actually think about how functions of inequality work here. Many of them are particular to the rural South, like how there are class categories like upwardly, downwardly mobile Scots-Irish bigamist, which is very actually, you know what, that also could be a thing in Boston. So I changed my mind. Could be an urban thing too. 
I don't know whether we'll get to this. I think we will. But like, this is a historical novel that I think actually like meets a lot of historical novel conventions, even though it does all those like Faulkner plot loops and stuff. And it jumps around and it doesn't seem to be conventional in that sense at all. But like, I think it does. And you and I both love both the historical novel and the sort of study of it. So there you go. Yeah, no, I mean, and I totally agree with that. And I mean, because for one thing, just the like one thing that I love about Faulkner, which we'll get to is just the, uh, you know, really interesting stuff about how the the weight of history like registers like but as, as kind of a matter of sort of interiority and psychology, um, which is which is great. I mean, that is like that. I, that is one of like the really amazing things that the historical novel, um, it, you know, is it, at its best is able to sort of uh, probe, you know, mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I also love SLA dying and uh the fact that James Franco loves it too doesn't even make me change my opinion on that. <laughs> he also he and I have like remarkably convergent tastes. Like he's also very into Allen Ginsberg, which upsets me, but I like know. I mean, fine. what are you gonna do? You know? but, well, uh, I guess I'm actually gonna get a PhD, so ha ha. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, a PhD with no with no uh air quotes as like a vanity project of a no, rich asshole. Real thing. But, it's uh, still a anyway. dumb thing to have done, but <laughs> no, like, I did it. It's like Seth Rogen, man. You're better than that. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like what's not to like about Faulkner. I, you know, you said we get to talk about inbreeding again, which is one of our favorite topics on the show. And as ever, uh, the, in, in, you know, at least the stuff we, we read on here, uh, it, it, the inbreeding <laughs> is, is about dec- the decrepit and decayed remains of a ruling class. It's kind of rotting away and like falling through the floorboards, which are undoubtedly soaked in the piss of rats and possums and mm-hmm. alligators and all other manners, southern, southern critters uh, of, of these collapsing baronial manners that, you know, used to be where uh, slave owners lived and, and are now ruins because this is happening before uh, rich white assholes decided to start having their themed weddings there. Uh, (laughs) and the theme is owning people yeah great that's yeah that's cool i'm glad you assholes get to cosplay as that yeah so i mean which is to say it is the gothic in a lot of ways that they go after the myriad uh ways in which the american aristocracy and specifically that of the south is monstrous and pathetic uh i think all at the same time Mm -hmm. that really turns my commie gear (laughs) oh hell yeah but okay so Faulkner, I think, is a lot more ambivalent, you know, aggravatingly so than than you know that that version that I just gave, you know, and and there is always more than a little indulgence of a fantasy that was always deeply racist and very very bad. Here, I do think that he is clear that it was bad, but he just there's like an affect. We talked about this, like, but you know, at our plan, like there's sort of like an atavistic attachment to it that's kind of like a little cringe. <laughs> it's it also clear that it's a fantasy, and so like yes. again. And that doesn't clear it up, but no, it no. is clear that it's like a fantasy and racist. But yeah, and 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 one that he is not at all afraid to critique very strongly, too. You know, right? right. And is also in <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> all all of the above. But you know, and, and so sort of for that reason, I think that 
his ambivalence around this stuff is, is generative in terms of what we can learn from his novels, uh, both about the kind of horrific historical forms that he's talking about and whatever the fuck it is that he thinks the novels are trying to do, like vis-a-vis interior psychology. Also, as, as you know, I'm not typically an academic who gives all that much of a shit about form, but I do think Faulkner's form and experiments with form are really compelling, like the stream oh. of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, no. I no, feel I like mean, I, I, I won the formalist, not battle, <laughs> but like uh, I brought you into my uh, into my cult. Well, at least at least with at least with this one, uh, or at least with at least with this guy in particular, because I mean it's not just Absalom, Absalom. I'm thinking of you know, it, it, like it doesn't strike me as Joycean at all. Again, I I am a convert as Joy- to Joyce as well, but like you know, my take on Ulysses is still it's sort of like the the experiment is like ripping the lid off the unconscious and see what's like bubbling around there. But like with Faulkner, it's more like so fo- you like- also love William James. Oh, now this is truly <laughs> a conversion story. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, we're you know, Katie and I are slowly converting into the 18th century, so it's totally fair. Um, you know, but w- with Faulkner, it's much more like we're staying with the conscious mind. But we're following all of its weird ass twists and turns and like how the weight of history shapes and screws with our perspectives on things in in a way that's really fascinating. And yeah, so much so that I don't care that all of the narrators in this book sound exactly like Faulkner. Yep, they do. (laughs) So today we are talking about the historical novel, but also this book's sort of historical detailing, especially its relationship to the Caribbean. We're talking about the production of race, racialization, class, and caste isn't the right word, but class systems. And of course, we're talking about incest, as we have no choice but to do. So yeah, I'm going to give the summary and like, oh, Bill, is this going to be a weird one? Uh, I'm going to go chapter by chapter, try and fill in the significant scenes. We've already talked about this, but there's so much stream of consciousness that happens that Sometimes you have to go back, like flip pages back to look for stuff that the book is like, oh, here's the thing that's already happened. And you're like, what the fuck, really? And then you find the moment where it happens. And the sentence is, he knew what Henry would say. And Henry said it. And he took the lie from his son. And Henry knew by his father taking the lie that what his father had told him was true. And father said that he, Sutpen, probably knew what Henry would do too and counted on Henry doing it because he still believed that it had been only a minor tactical mistake <gasps> having breath control problems and so he was like a skirmisher who is outnumbered yet cannot retreat who believes that if he is just patient enough and clever enough and calm enough and alert enough he can get the enemy scattered and pick them off one by one sure I'm sorry. Sure. Who's greater? <laughs> I mean, I, I like. There's just two characters, but we're ba- like, we're just balancing. We're through, in like, Quentin's brain. Yes. Yeah. Right. Sorry. There's three characters. There's Sutpen. There's Henry. Then there's the narrator. But the narrator is also there's four because the narrator is only getting this through his father, right. um, who at some point is even only getting this from his father. Right. Right. So, and then we're also getting it from Rosa and. Jason Compson appears to be more reliable here than he actually is. Also, yeah. Shreve and Quentin, because they have that chapter where they're like, well, what would have happened? And then yeah. they make it the fuck up because they want to. 
they just do what if hours. But like, if yes. you're not paying, if you're not paying close attention to the way that chapter begins, that it's easy to miss that, and you think that you're back in this sort of like, yeah, at the, the mainstream of the narrative, and you're not, you know. So anyway, yeah. right, and so you have to go back and look for it, and then you're like, I'm not sure that this is helpful. But yeah. you've said then by the end, he said it like 40 different ways. So then you're like, okay, maybe that's uh, helpful. Yeah, or something. Yeah. And anyway, we, we we just gave you guys, you know, our listeners, a lot of a lot of characters that you might not know yet. So why don't you tell us about who these people are? Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so in chapters one and two, Quentin Compson, who's I think nineteen here, and Rosa Coldfield, who's this old woman, are talking in her fading, dusty, decrepit ass Southern Gothic house. She's going to tell him a ghost story. <laughs> Not really, but actually very much really. Like, yeah. you're still yeah. in Gothic. You're in the Gothic novel. So she is going to tell him about her and her sister Ellen's entanglement with the cursed Thomas Sutpen who rolled into Jefferson, Mississippi in 1833. Okay, shift, narrative shift. You won't notice it in the text. It's hard to see. It probably happens over a sentence. But actually, now we're back to before Quentin gets there and his dad is telling him the background of this as he, Jason Compson III, that's his dad, has heard it from his father, who is, I think, General Sutpin? Yeah, or Colonel. Compson. Is it, is it Colonel or General? Or, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think it's General. Colonel is somebody else. Yeah, okay. Colonel oh, right. I've, yes, yeah, yes, right. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yes, Kurt. Yes, Sutton is a colonel. That's right. I've read this five times and we're still having trouble. And somebody's <laughs> going to send us an email being like, actually, you got this plot point wrong. And I'll be like, yeah, I probably did. <sighs> so, okay. What we learn is that Sutpen in 1833 purchased 100 square miles of virgin land, is what they say, from the Indians. Again, their words. I think it would have been Chickasaw. He disappears for two months and then returns with 20 wild N-word, this is in the text, and a French architect. And he builds a plantation called Sutpen's Hundred over two years. They make the bricks themselves and you, reader, probably rightly are like, oh, he must have forced his slaves to make them. He does, but he also does it himself. And this is one of the weird things that we begin to see here, which is like his relationship to racialization is very strange and difficult to parse. Yeah. So through an arrangement with the town's Methodist minister, Coldfield, Sutpin marries his elder daughter, Ellen, and brings her back to the plantation. And this is going to be bad because the last sentence of the chapter is, it did indeed rain on that marriage. Yeah. And, and I like, like, every, <laughs> it is, that whole chapter is, the framing is so creepy. Like, Quentin meets Rosa in this, like, this dusty old house where, like, it's, it's 150 degrees because she won't open any she won't of the, open the windows. The windows. And she, like, she doesn't fit in the massive, like, she's got, like, this Bod Villain chair that she doesn't, like, fit yeah. in. It's, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's great, and and also I like. I mean, Quentin is so. I mean, like actually, I mean, maybe you'll tell us more about the like Quentin in the uh, the the Faulkner uh, comic universe, <laughs> but like because yeah. I know I know he's like you know he's a character that we get a lot of, but like his his speech in this, other than when he's like narrating this kind of long form stuff to his friend, is basically like yes, um, uh, yeah, no, 
no, you know, it's like these, he's like yeah. barely like said shit as he's like talking to other people. And yet he's got that, like, we're just in his brain so much, you know? So, yeah, I mean, he is the classic Faulkner comic universe <laughs> guy, but like, yeah. he's not here, the guy he isn't. Well, he is the guy who he isn't sound in the three. Anyway, that is chapters one and two. Okay. Chapter three bounces all the fuck around in time get used to this but <laughs> here are the basics this i'm trying to do this chronologically in the diegesis and not in the novel sudpin has two children with ellen judith and henry and once henry is in college he begins bringing around his friend charles bon bon he's from new orleans sudpin also has a daughter clytie whose mother is one of sudpin's enslaved women she also lives there and we also learn that Rosa, who's telling the story to Quentin, herself moves to Sutpen's Hundred after her sister Ellen dies at the beginning of the war. And then Rosa lives with Judith and Clyde during the war when the men have gone off to serve. Okay. And there's a lot of stuff in this chapter about fathers and sons and money and ladies of the South. And try to pay attention, Lulabelle, because there's a lot of people, a lot of plot loops. Uh, my my memory of the and, you know I I just read this but it is it is such a fucking whirlwind getting through three hundred pages of Faulkner. My memory of Charles Bond is like as soon as he appears, you're like, oh, he and Henry are definitely back here at least want to. Yeah, it, for but sure. Also, like Henry and Judith, you're like, hmm, I I see where this is going to, right? Like, yeah, it's like it's a love triangle, and they the thing about Faulkner is even if people aren't like. They are committing incest, even if it's not like physically fucking. Like yeah. they have already done it. Yeah, like I like I actually think the physicality of it is secondary or tertiary to just the mere factor of like where desire goes in this. Yeah. You know, like yeah, so right. So it, it like yeah, I completely agree. It doesn't the, the physicality does not actually matter, and we don't really right. even need to pay attention to it uh, to call it you know to think of it in terms of like incest or other kind of prescribed desire. And we don't. I don't want to go too far outside of the novel, but it's in the second chapter of The Sound and the Fury when Quentin says to his father, I have committed incest. And they have not physically done it, but we accept that that counts as having done it in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like you you can't use evidence outside of this book, but like you can. It's like, (laughs) this is our show. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) graduate yeah. school teachers well and, and i mean and i think yeah exactly and i think that it is that is uh you know that would be a good comparative case because that lets us talk broadly about like what ha- what faulkner thinks this form, the important uh factors of this form is and what it might signify you know yeah. so yeah yeah yeah. okay so and bond comes in and we all as readers are like this guy is important like he's yeah. definitely like flagged big time because he's fancy lad okay so chapter four we know that Sutpen, Char- Henry Sutpen has met Charles Bond at college, and he, Bond, becomes engaged to Judith, who's the sister. But Charles Bond has a lot of baggage. He is married to this woman in New Orleans, and they have a son together. This woman is referred to as an octoroon, meaning someone who is one-eighth black. I like really despise using percentiles in that way i just that's the vocabulary of the 19th century and so that's just what i'm signposting and the way the book uses it and 
Bon is also very light skinned, but he has. We're starting to get these sort of like pieces of information that he also has black ancestry. Mm-hmm. So Henry has brought him home to Sutton's Hundred, and he and Henry are like extremely into each other. But the book is like, but in like a brotherly way, but also like that is also <laughs> being very into each other because we are in a Faulkner novel. Yeah, yeah. This is a very weird love triangle. So when Henry learns about the wife. He then forbids Bond to write to Judith. Bond waits four years until after the war and then sends her a letter. Meanwhile, Judith, Rosa, and Clyde are living at the plantation, taking care of each other. And when they get back, sorry, when the men get back from the war, Henry confronts Bond at the gate. We learn from this guy, Wash Jones, who's this poor white guy who lives on the property, sort of like out of the line of vision. It's a little strange. Um, We learned from him that Henry has killed, has shot Charles Bond on the property. We don't know all the background of this, but we know it's happened. Chapter five, again, does the back and like temporal back and forth. So like Rosa arrives at Sutpence hundred after the shooting. And then after the war, she gets engaged to Sutpen herself, which is like, She's a lot younger than Ellen. She's younger than Judith. Yeah. But they yeah. just do this sort of yeah, like, well, like he a- was your sister's husband, so now she he should be your husband. Yeah, she in fact yeah, right. She yeah, she's she's younger than both her niece and uh and nephew and i think i uh, just gonna wait one to find one thing yeah right no she she's she is born seven years after ellen and get married and yeah. and Mary. yeah so, um right, yeah. but like before that she clyde judith and wash jones bury charles bond on the property and then at the end of this chapter rosa reveals to quentin that there's like there's something ha- still at Sutton's hundred and this is again like a very gothic novel moment where we're like what is it the old plantation that's falling apart like what what shall we find <laughs> you get to find out in another 150 it's pages a ghost. what's there <laughs> he also like faulkner's aware that he's in a gothic novel but nobody else is yeah right no they well they, i mean it's i and that is something again like i do i do really love about what his novels do with this uh this class and this place and this you know kind of white supremacist structure is that like they don't get there in a gothic novel because they live in horror yeah. all yeah, yeah, the yeah. time you know what i mean like, there, there is no outside of the horror so it doesn't really register them to them they're like huh this is a no, little weird you go ahead <laughs> you and go to harvard it makes no difference you are still trapped there yeah exactly. um i it feels so weird to do this as like a just the facts thing because none of it actually like accounts for how the novel works so we'll, we'll get to that as we go so in chapter six Quentin. Remember him? He's the guy that Rosa, who's an old lady, is telling the story to. It's If you can keep track of Quentin, you're doing pretty well. He <laughs> is reading a letter from his father to his boyfriend roommate <laughs> at yeah, yeah. both, for Probably. sure, at Harvard. His yeah. name is Shreve. Shrevelyn McLaughlin, I think. He's Canadian. 
to make sure you get him as far out of the south as you can, like to, to give him distance, critical distance. He's from Canadian, from from the the prairie provinces, yes, right? Like he's from Alberta, you know. Which is yeah, that I thought that because like I when I first heard he was Canadian, I just assume it's like well, this means Toronto or Montreal. Like no, he's like from way way west. Yeah, he has to Canada. be as far away from this as possible because he gives us like the outside. Yeah, no, right. And then there is that like amazing line where it talks about, but like, oh, but the Mississippi kind of drains Alberta. So see, they actually were yeah. like connected. Also, he's just as racist as any That's southerner true. in this book, you know? Like, That's uh, right. So Quentin has, has gotten this letter and then he recounts to Shreve that in his older years, Thomas Sutpin, once the plantation starts to go to seed, he runs this little crossroads store in town but like really he spends all his time like drinking with wash jones and fucking millie jones who is his 15 year old granddaughter it's cool it's great um she gets pregnant and delivers a baby by him this scene is totally fucking wild because it's not again it's like we don't see it like it's narrated because that's how everything operates in this novel. So you can never be sure what really happened. And so like unreliable narrator, new criticism hours. But Wash Jones slits both his daughter, his granddaughter and his great granddaughter's throats. He also kills Thomas Sutpin with a scythe for real. Yeah, he does. And, and, and all of which is like, He's fine with everything that's happened, including the 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 that you know that uh, this this baby has been produced. The rape of a child. Uh, what sets him over the edge? Yeah, the ra- yes, he's fine with the rape of a child. He's fine with the the the, the you know the 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 baby you know the baby and everything else like that. Which again, I mean, this you know it's a uh, you know quote unquote illegitimacy was the thing in this era. Uh, but what he's not cool with is Sutpin says uh, what what is this? It's some like horrific line. It's like oh, it's too bad you weren't a mayor, Millie, or I would give you a room yeah. in the stable or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very it's yeah. Oh god, the whole scene is super fucking gross. And yeah, yeah. that's and yeah. I- yeah, that's that's Thomas. It's Sutton. great. And I don't think I actually get to this later in the summary, but there's this moment where Shreve and Quentin are talking about this and Shreve is sort of like, "Oh, he has the lineage resolution he always wanted. Like he there's this baby, right? Like he could have had the thing he wanted and then it's like a reveal that it's a daughter because Sutpin can't have the version of the son that he imagines we always know in the book that this is not right that it's not the case that he will have the son who will like continue the legacy of the name or whatever yeah no that right and because i think like when i i guess like as we started to get into that material i was assuming that the 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 problem for sutpen of the child was mainly about class Mm -hmm. uh but it it I think it's actually much more about gender. And as you tell us more about Suppin's background, that might, you know, maybe that'll help shed some light on what, why, like what that yeah, means. Yeah, I mean, and it's so like, this is the breakage that the book is already, as soon as you open it, this is already broken, which is the possibility of a like father to son transmission of, of like name and property and whatever. And it's not even that Faulkner thinks that's like a bad thing. He just thinks that it's like a part of the collapse of the South. And then, so after the Sutpin's death, Clyde goes to New Orleans to recover Charles Bond's son. Remember, we have actually heard that he exists. It's one of the reasons Henry was mad at him. Not the reason, 
but one of them. And <laughs> she goes to recover Charles Etienne de saint valery Bon, who is the son. She and Judith raise him along with his son, Jim Bond, who we, I think, are led to believe is developmentally disabled. Okay. And then Judith and Charles Etienne both die of yellow fever. And we get yet another preview of how there's something else there when Rosa and Quentin went to Seven Hundred. They keep doing these like, there goes. <laughs> um, oh, okay. And then chapter seven recalls Sutpin's own origins. He is born in this. They have this argument about it. Like, is it Virginia or West Virginia? And actually it's Virginia, but now it's West Virginia. Oh, no. Um, his family moved to a big plantation and then this has one of the book's most famous scenes in which Sutpen, he's 14, I think he goes to the big house of this plantation to deliver a message to the, the guy, the owner, and he's turned away from the door by a slave and he's humiliated by this. And this is where Faulkner tells us that Sutpen learns the difference between white men and black. This is like one of the mm-hmm. fundamental moments because like one of the ways Faulkner frames this is like that white men think that they could kill any black person but this is like a real point of tension with poor white men because mm-hmm. they yeah, kind of feel like right. well aren't I allowed to like aren't I better than these people like it's a it's a tension right. and then he, we learn that at 20, he goes to the West Indies. We've actually heard this before, but this is like now put in the context of like his biography. So we remember it better or something. He mm-hmm. also marries a woman who we learn later is also mixed race, but it's like kept from him until like <laughs> her father tells him. And it's all very the the mystery of the one yeah. drop. Yeah, it, right. At no, definitely. Um, and there's a ton to say about this chapter, which I th- we'll talk about later when we get into the kind of the historical novel aspects of it. Um, but I, uh, I, I did. I, I if I could tell a story, please, <laughs> always. Better not be okay, about going so, to the West Indies and getting surprise married. Uh, no, no, <laughs> certainly not. No. Uh, well, okay. So two related stories. And, and I, 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 at the end of this, it'll explain why what you just said reminded me of this. So when I was a kid, I was a huge dork. I always wanted to go to president's houses when we would go on trips. Okay. Oh, one of the president's oh houses God. we went to. Did you go to Nixon's you know, house? I'm, trying, I'm like, no, not, didn't go to Nixon's house. Went to Eisenhower's house at Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, not Nixon's but anyway. house, but where it's located. I would so go there. Where, where is where, where is, is it? it? It's not in it's not in Palm Springs, but it's somewhere cool. Right. Yeah. Right. Nixon. Nixon's a California guy. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I did. I certainly am never go. Did not. and never will go to the fucking Reagan Ranch. Oh dear God! Like no. 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 But, uh, it's in San Clemente. So two two presidents' houses. I have to tell you about one. Andrew Jackson. <gasps> horror, one of the worst assholes of all time. When I, I was again, I'm like 10. Uh, the, the tour guide is telling us all about how the boys had to stay uh, in like the barn and the girl stayed in the house. And 10 year old me is like, why? Uh-oh. The tour guide takes my parents aside and says, it says, I don't know how to tell him this. 
it was to prevent incest. <laughs> like, which is just, oh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful class of assholes. Uh, then uh, to second, second uh, is, uh, and this is where this gets links to what you said, uh, Woodrow Wilson's house, another white supremacist mm-hmm, piece mm-hmm. of shit. Uh, his boyhood room had the big pre-Civil War map of Virginia before, you know, the South shall rise again, so give us back these Northwest counties. So, Ooh. yeah, it's like, I don't think Virginia looks like that. It's like, no, but this was his most prized possession as a child, a map of the, the, the Old Dominion. So That's anyway. lovely. Uh, he, he, um, he came up laterally in our um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes episode in which Anita Luz makes fun of Birth of a Nation. Yes. Yeah. Right. Which, yes. Which, which, uh, yeah. Wilson proclaimed it's like history written with lightning. It's like, fuck you. I'm glad. Yeah. Fuck dead. you for real. I'm glad you're dead. Thank you for just validating a movie that like rebirthed the clan. Yep. Yep. Anyway, Anita yeah. Luz totally rules though. Oh, yeah. She's yeah. not the read, problem. Yes, listen, listen to that episode and read that yeah. book. <laughs> it's much funnier than this book, which is to say funny at all. Uh, so uh, he, he learns that this woman is mixed race and pronounces her as you do. Apparently, so in chapter eight, we're still in we're still in Massachusetts. I am never clear on why they keep the room so fucking cold, but it's a whole thing in these chapters that like Quentin and Treve are like freezing their buns off. Yeah, I don't get it. Maybe so they have to take and anyway, they have to (laughs) snuggle. I guess. I was just gonna say so they could get in the same sleeping bag. You know. Um, in chapter eight, we sort of revisit the events of of the confrontations that Henry Sutpen and Thomas Sutpen had, had with Bond, but from Bond's point of view, how can be this is not where we are. This is uh, Shreve and Quentin having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Which again, if you blank, you might miss that, that that's what this is. Yeah. yeah. And this is also like one of the things that we, I think, learn happens here. Again, it's like, I don't know when any of this happens, but like they, I think it's in this fantasy where Henry and Sutpin, who had not been fighting in the same regiment, uh, have this confrontation during the war where Sutpin tells him not that he's actually already learned that he's his brother and he doesn't care that his brother is going to marry his sister. Okay. Yeah. 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 But this is where we learn that Bond's mother was, in quotation marks, black. And this is why Henry can't have Charles Bond marry Judith. Yeah. Right. It's not the it's not the incest. It's the the, the, I think that that's a line in the book, right? It's not the incest. It's the miscegenation. Yeah. Yeah, And like uh, Henry has this particularly wild interpretation of that. Which is that like, oh, the French dukes used to do it. And so like that makes sense. <laughs> like the French dukes didn't already didn't also like fuck poor and black women who are enslaved to them and also like anyway, it's not it's not like, oh, they, right. they did this one thing, so it's great. Yeah, right. Yeah, they they did yeah, they did they did a lot of a lot of horrible things and a lot of them lost their yeah. heads and we're not we're mad not mad about, about that. <laughs> um okay, so we learn about this this is again like the fourth time this confrontation has happened, where we learn that Henry shoots Charles Bond because he can't marry Judith because we think the reveal is that it's because Bond is his brother, but it's not, it's because Bond is part in quotations black unquote that's the thing 
that we're mad about. And this is also a chapter where we get into some like, there's again, this is like a very theme chapter. So it's like brother, boyfriend, father, son shit here where like, where they're sort of like talking about what happens at Sutton's 100. And then um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out the context for this, which is nearly impossible. But they're sort of like <laughs> um, writing out he they have this like fantasy of Charles Bond and Henry Sutpin riding out together on Christmas Eve. And in the book, it says it's now four of them, Charles Shreve and Quentin Henry, the two of them both believing that Henry was thinking he, his father, has destroyed us all. Not for one woman thinking he, Bond, must have known or at least suspected all this time. That's why he has acted as he has, why he never answered my letters last summer nor write to Judith how he has never asked her to marry him, believing that that must have occurred to Henry, certainly during that moment after Henry emerged from the house and he and Bond looked at one another for a while, blah, blah, blah. It goes on for two pages. But we get this like character palimpsest where Quentin and Shreve are made into the brother lovers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting slash weird. Good. Yeah. This is also the chapter yeah, I mean, where, I, like, this is the question of is this love? But sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I, uh, I, all of these like ta- tawdry love triangles in this book are super compelling to me. The one that is not is Quentin and Shreve. Like, I think <laughs> you said that when we were starting. Like, I just don't give a fuck. Like, it's not you know because yeah. I think that like I mean even like on the lens of like you know queer desire, which is super present in here, super present in a lot of Faulkner. It's just like the Charles Henry one is so much more compelling yeah, totally. than the Quentin Shreve. It's like it's like I mean it, it's so it's like okay, this is a fine, cool little narrative framing device but what i really don't give that much of a shit yeah i mean and it's like because quentin in particular is actually quite flat here like he's just really a sort of window for this thing to happen that it's hard for us to be like i don't really care who his boyfriend is yeah and but there's this like long thing here where many different kinds of relationships are like shreve says he's trying to parse the relationship between like henry and bond and Quentin says it's not love and he says this a lot of times. So it's, it is like for all of the terror that it, it's not actually exhibiting, but that it's working through, it does leave open the possibility that there's something like love here. Yeah. There certainly is yeah, between no, Quentin I, and Shreve. Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that's interesting to me. Like it's not, there's this other moment where like, okay, Henry is thinking again, this is Shreve narrating. Why? Not just because he, he means Bond, is older than I am and has known more than I shall ever know and has remembered more of it, but because of my own free will and whether I knew it at the time or not, does not matter. I gave my life and Judas both to him. And Quentin says, that's still not love. And it's like, fucking isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Like, how does the the climax, of the, which I mean, I yeah, like I'm using that intentionally. Uh-huh. How when he gets shot? Like, how does any of that crisis and all of the like hand wringing leaning up to it, if it is not love, but yes. also it, like and, and betrayal, right? Like, there's no there's no betrayal that rises to all of the angst, totally. you know, uh, and and everything else absent love, right? So yeah, 
Um, and, and again, I think that like, I mean, which the, the racialization too, right? Like, I mean, partially why uh, Charles, you know, has to be like in Henry's view ultimately has to be killed is, uh, is yeah. I mean, he doesn't want his sister uh, marrying someone who's, you know, part black, but I think the other is that he, he himself, like he has to kill his own yep. desire, right? Like there's, you know, that, that his own, uh, that, that also is like for him, uh, you know, racistly problematized along these lines. Yeah. I mean, it's again it's like the problem is that it's love to a certain degree uh, no I, I yes i how could it how could it and not? it's also that like so. and this is again i remember moments from this well that are like snips because that's just how this book yeah. works but there's a different moment where it's like he can give judith to him because what he's really giving him is himself yeah the book is pretty explicitly like you can marry judith because you're marrying me Yes. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. And, and which I think uh, is it is it is it Jason Thompson that uh, calls that that says like maybe that's the purest form of incest, right? Like that, yeah. that, that, that I might get my boyfriend to marry my sister because I can't bang my sister and I also can't bang my boyfriend, so it's fine that yeah. they're banging. You know, like, yeah. So. Uh, no spoilers, but again, laterally moving to a different book, the. Sound and the Fury is Jason Compson, who's the father, Jason Compson III, his three sons, Quentin, Benji, and Jason Compson IV, and how they are all in love with their sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. That's yep. that whole book. So, yep. Just so he knows, that's a that's what's uh that's what's uh it's happening in his family too, dickhead. <laughs> Quentin is gonna kill himself. What a matter of months before yeah. the fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. Uh. Yeah. Okay. This is the last stuff. Probably read more books in this series. Finally, chapter nine. We learn what has happened at Sutpens Hundred in that much telegraphed something is out there. So after their conversation, Quentin and. Miss Rosa ride out to Sutpence Hundred to find what's there. He had said to her earlier in the novel, like, oh, Clyde's out there. And she's like, maybe, maybe yeah. it's that, but I don't think it's that. But they find Clyde in like one of those scenes that you think should be in a movie. Like they're faff, they're like fucking around. They had to use a hatchet to get into the house. And she strikes a match behind them. And they turn <laughs> around and it's like, oh. <gasps> <laughs> All right, so. and she's like a no. million she's much older than rosa who's yes. an old old yeah. woman by this point yeah she, yeah uh Clady, uh was born before the the uh judith and henry yeah, yeah she's so. the second oldest of his children yeah so she's much older than rosa who is old so yeah. we know that Clady is there and that she's ominously striking matches in a house that's like falling apart like the floor is falling in but rosa has this like impulse she's like gonna run up the stairs clyde grabs her and she's trying to prevent her this is also like foreshadowed earlier in the novel where rosa calls clyde the n-word and says get my get your hand off of me but rosa makes her way upstairs she sees first jim bond who's the grandson of charles bond just sort of he's standing there they make their way past him and in the back bedroom they find lo and behold henry sudpin himself he has come home to die in the manse the son the the 
heir apparent has come finally and at long last to die in the big in house. The rotting, in the rotting wreckage of the yep. big house, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bill. Subtle. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So they leave and then like Rosa and Quentin leave these like incredibly old people to die or whatever. And but we learned that Rosa three months later had sent an ambulance to find Henry for some reason. And then hearing about this, Clyde burns down the house with both of them inside it. Again, fucking good for her. Who cares? Yeah. But Jim yeah. Bond escapes and maybe we don't know what happens to him. Um, we never find out as far as I know in the Faulkner comic universe. Um, and so at the very end, Shreve is thinking about the South. Earlier in the book, we learned that everybody at Harvard is like, what's it like in Mississippi? And Quentin's like, shut up. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. Shreve says like why he's thinking about why, quote, all the folks outlive themselves by years and years. And Quentin, he asked Quentin why he hates the South, why Quentin hates the South. And the last words of the novel are Quentin saying, I don't hate it, he said. I don't hate it, he thought, panting in the cold air, the iron New England dark. I don't. I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Yeah. The 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 way you convince yourself of something totally. is to say it. Say it 40 times. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I, I mean, and well, and I feel like, but you know what? Like, I also feel like that is such a perfect ending because that really is Faulkner, right? Oh, that yeah. he's like, he, yeah, like he, he definitely does have this, like, yeah, I fucking hate it, but all, but all, but I guess I don't know. It's like I feel like Quentin is trying to bury something there, whereas I think Faulkner is more happy to just kind of live in the ambivalence of it, right? Um, well, but, and he's he's fine to like continue to live in the South and like inhabit its. Yeah, it's weirdness as opposed to doing this thing where you send a character into into like the the craziest place into Massachusetts to sort of like not actually yeah. leave the South, but to yeah. get an outsider yeah. to show you why it's the South. Yep. Yeah. So what? So so what? What do people think of this book? Oh, <laughs> do people have thoughts? <laughs> they have buku buku thoughts. But I'm only gonna give a really small summary here, which is like. I'm not going to do any context on Faulkner himself because just like go read the Wikipedia. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature and he wrote a lot of books. Some of them are good. Some of them are excellent. And some of them are not. <laughs> and for the context. So, okay. So I'm talking about critical reception more. So there's this strain of leftist criticism and that. So when I talk about this, remember that these are like pre-cultural studies people. So their takes don't really feel left to us as readers because they're not historicist in the way that ours are to something to note. There's a bunch of these like new criticism dorks who love him um, because of course, and he also has this reception history with black writers and critics in African-American studies. I probably won't bring it up again, but Toni Morrison wrote her dissertation about Faulkner, mm. which, well, and, and everybody I tell that to is like, oh, I didn't know that. And they reread Beloved and they're like, okay, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. uh, um, not, which is not to dissociate her from like the African-American novel tradition, but, you know, it's hybrid. Right. So from the point of view of the sort of lefty types, like Irving Howe, who's this famous critic, he's often – he's wrong a lot about a lot of stuff, but he had great politics. He started Descent Magazine, um, which still exists. He wrote a book called William Faulkner, A Critical Study. Again, he has a lot of formalist attachments because this is literary criticism in 1956. But he also has some great stuff about Yoknipatafa County, which is where these 
most of these books take place. Um, he has a chapter called Classes and Clans, and he says, this is quote, um, Yokona Patafa has its social classes, but they are either vestigial or embryonic remnants of the old aristocracy or forerunners of a new commercial ruling class. And then later, we hear, he has a sentence where he says, quote, clan rather than class forms the basic social unit in Faulkner's world. Pride in family and reverence for ancestors are far more powerful motives and behavior than any commitment to class, which is, of course, expected in a society where the past clings to the present like a habitual lover, neither relinquished nor enjoyed. Um, it's not a good sentence, but it's whatever. Um, and my initial – so initially I was like me jerk about this like, oh, class is everywhere. It's not family. Shut up, Margaret Thatcher. But like I, <laughs> on reflection, agree with this too. And I think it's because he, Irving Howe, is not saying that class in general is less important than clan. I think what he's saying is that characters don't seem committed to class in the way that they are to family. Like we can see this with like Bond and Henry, for example, but that class is highly determining. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that is what the characters, their commitments are different than what we, what we also see happening. Yeah, it's right. No, but that makes sense, right? Because I mean, the 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 war and the the tra- the you know the the abolition of slavery transition to this whole this other like you know a very exploitative like sharecropper based and highly rash- racialized economy, right? I mean, like so you you have a class structures and and flux. You have though the the redoubling of the commitment to white supremacism, mm-hmm. though, right? And like the necessity of a narrative that is going to provide some cohesion to groups that ultimately. I mean, and this like you know this is. Other that always like drives i think you know every every left is crazy about american history like what the fuck like a poor white farmer in the south and a plantation owning asshole have nothing in fucking common with each other except this bullshit narrative of whiteness and you know which was a really fucking powerful Unfor- I mean, you know, horrifically thing. Um, and, and I think that just gets, you know, that is, is just juiced even further when you do have like the collapse of the old class, the not yet emergence of the new class. Yeah, totally. You know? Well, and this, I think we can, at least for me, like it's all over the book, but it's really transparent in the moment. Again, this is like the one of the turning point scenes where he's turned away from the house because he's like, oh, this the way I'm going to solve the problem of being rejected from the big house as a poor white person by up black person who you can't actually call a slave yeah. poor because it's a total it's like a class order where like you yeah. don't have access to money at all so you can't say that right i'm going to resolve this rejection by having sons right yeah yeah you know so yeah, like class like right. <laughs> and clan are grafted onto each other it's not like yeah. uh irving howe's not saying like it's a family it's not society right um, cause I just wanted to be like, what the fuck are you talking? Like, no, no, no. He's not saying that. Yeah. He's not, uh, Maggie. Okay. So like the next guy to mention to talk about this critical reception is Cleanth Brooks, who, if you don't know him, he's one of the big names in American new criticism, along with people like Robert Penn Warren and Wimsat and Beardsley and a bunch of other chuds. If you're wondering who to blame for all those five paragraph essays you had to write in high school, he's one of them. Uh, great. Fuck off, dude. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he wrote two full books about Faulkner. 
And he wrote these books that are now, well, I don't think they're used anymore, but they used to be used as textbooks. And one is called How to Read Poetry Good and Get a Good AP Lit Score. (laughs) And the other is called How to Read a Novel Good, which is basically exactly the same as a poem, but long. Yeah. Just love the new critics. I do. I love them. I also love that they treat novels like poetry and it's just like, bruh. It's yeah, not. It's fine. <laughs> They're different, and that's okay. Okay, so in the Yoknapatafa country, which is one of his books, he tries – He okay, this is funny. He tries to make some account of Faulkner's representation of inequality, even if his discoveries strike us as quite useless. But like the straw man about new criticism is that, that – I'm not defending it, but that they make no reference to anything outside of the book. That's not actually true, but what they say is still dumb. Mm-hmm, right. So right. it's only useful to talk about that if it's like well represented because like right. oh this is a good book and like all we care about is that it's a good book. So if the representations you know square with us then that still makes it a good book. Right. It's, there's right. a lot of value judgment in mid-century criticism that I think strikes <laughs> us as like to- totally fucking wild. Yeah, well, it's just not what we do anymore. But it's like it is so much of like a piece with criticism going all the way back to the 18th century, where the question is, is, is this good? a good book or not? Whereas me, you know, fucking, you know, pinko uh, 21st century literary critics, like I don't give a fuck. Usually, I, I would know. rather read. Usually, I would rather read bad stuff because it like wears its ideology on its sleeve. You know, well, and I love a lot of books that are like clunky screeds. I have no. Yeah no problem with that i also like but i will admit that the books that i don't work on but sort of love are often technically masterful no i mean like right tristram shandy oh tristram shandy is empirically like an excellent yes right exactly robinson crusoe is is bad but I will never shut the fuck up about it because it's crazy. It's like, this teaches us so much about why the world is as fucked up as it is. Right. Know? For me, that's Invisible Man and Native Son, right? Like, yeah. Native Son yeah, is like yeah, yeah, not yeah. a great novel, although it is like an amazing, it's one of the most important cultural objects of the 20th century, yeah. without a doubt. But Invisible Man is like a masterful technical novel. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, it's a perfect novel. And that, is probably why I won't end up writing about it. <laughs> Honestly, it's hard to say things <laughs> yeah. about like perfect novels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, but that's what new critics love. They like that it's a good novel. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Brooke says, like, because uh, he's like, okay, I guess there are poor people in the world. And he says that in Faulkner, like, some good people are poor and some bad people are rich and vice versa. And this is good because I guess they're not just stereotypes, they're people. And that's makes it a good book. I guess. Um, and then he spends the rest yeah. of this book in like laborious close reading on chapters. His chapter is called Faulkner as Nature Poet. Yep. I know. And like, so new critics love Faulkner because he's like, has complicated prose and they think that makes it poetry. Cool. <laughs> really interesting critical genealogy from a historicist point of view. Not that interesting as a methodology. No. <laughs> um, but I will end on my big, most beloved novelist critic, Ralph Ellison, favorite novel ever, and his take on Faulkner that we can position in the Faulkner criticism as it overlaps with the African-American critical genealogy. 
again, like Toni Morrison talks about Faulkner. Um, she's in particular interested in in color as like a sort of mark, the color fetish, she calls it. But in the 20th century fiction and the Black Mask of Humanity, which is an essay, and later Ellison was like, what was I, like 22 when I wrote that? It's pretty stupid. Um, <laughs> it's not, but it is a little young. He has this long reflection on Black characters in 20th century fiction. I think he thinks it's naive because he does spend time being like, most people are racist. <laughs> which is not wrong, right. but not very deep. But his take on Faulkner is quite interesting because he does do something different. So like he says in Faulkner that he does do some like good black people, bad black people, like binaries and stereotypes. But he says that, quote, the white Southerner is apt to associate any form of personal rebellion with the Negro. So that for the Southern artist, the Negro becomes a symbol of his personal rebellion, his guilt, and his repression of it. So, like, for me as a reader, this is a really interesting take, which is that the idea of using Black characters to elucidate, like, quote, Southern ethical, political problems, and also, like, the what we definitely feel here is a sort of, like, psychoanalytic set of problems, which is, like, very available in Faulkner, because, duh, that seems really interesting. And it helps us move away from these, like, Cleanth Brooks's really trite take, which is, like, it's good and the black people seem like people, so it's like not racist or whatever. Or the sort of pure ideological take, which is like, this is racist or it's not racist, and that in itself is a substantial critique. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, that's that's like a weird way of doing context, but it's just sort of a reception, a abbreviated reception history. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. I think that gets one of the 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 you know remaining things that we we definitely wanted to talk about was like the his you know historic the historic historicity of what of Faulkner's concerns in the historical novel. I will just say like so one thing. Um, I I mean that that Ellison uh you know account is really fascinating. Um, and tracks well with a lot that I you know you know I've thought and read about Faulkner. I will say the one uh thing like thinking of that claim as pertains to this book is like. Like, I mean, I think it, it holds up, but what is interesting to me is that like, I think the characters that it works best for in, in Absalom, Absalom are characters who are part black yeah. and part white, right? Like characters who are, who are not, you know, or who are not, not kind of mixed race. Um, they, well, they're kind of at the, like the sort of margins, like we just don't others, hear though? from them. I mean, the only others are the the only others that we are really visible are, for instance, the uh, the the enslaved man who turns him yeah. away from the door. Although we honestly don't know much about because that we don't really know what his background is. But I think you know we're not we're it's he's not like explicitly you know presented as being mixed mixed race. But the other is uh is probably uh, the twenty slaves oh, that Sutton totally. shows up with yeah, in yeah, Mississippi. Yeah. But but all the only thing we hear from them is basically they their their weird sort of like relationship with Sutbin that doesn't uh like they 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 are perceived as weird in the context of like quote unquote like American right. slaves but also just like his cuz like he fight you know he he has like prize fights with them and stuff like that that's very it's it's typed as being very like odd but but no you're, the others like Charles Bond Charles Bond's son uh you know they 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 are uh you know I think they fit with what Alice is saying but they are you know they're they're mixed they're mixed race right and that's the sort of like what what tony morrison says which is like that that is like the one drop rule is the sort of like Mm -hmm. the mystical germ that is like 
completely overdetermined, right? Like that's the site yeah. of all of our like terror and rage and like mm-hmm. excesses of sexuality. Again, this is like Toni Morrison. I'm straight up yeah. stealing. I'm not stealing it. I'm giving her credit, but like that's the like grain that mm-hmm. that gets deployed around yeah. is the one drop. And I think it's yeah. like it's super there with Charles Bond. It's super there with Charles Etienne de Saint Valerie Bond. Yeah. Not in a in a not with Clyde. I think that she's very different. I think like men and women who are mixed race are represented totally differently. Yeah. No. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Well. Yeah. And Charles Char- Char- Etienne Saint Valerie. <laughs> like he uh, he he mar- he marries uh, a uh, black woman. That and that that actually. He, so he it's like, like an uh, act like of his, rebellion. His I know that this again. Like I don't want to duplicate Faulkner's vernacular there, but. No, but but I, like Charles Bond's act of rebellion is very much is is like I will marry your daughter, yeah. like that kind of thing. Whereas 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 his son's act of rebellion seems to cut like racially cut the other way, where it's like I'm going to align much more fully with with the with blackness in this way. Yeah. So no, that no that that is really I, that that's really interesting. Yeah. So I like I mean, it, and, and I think it does it, it opens up the, the historicity question. Um, I did so I like I have a question for you. We talked a little bit about this in text, uh, right? And I like I don't want to make too much of this, um, but I, I think it is interesting for like what the novel's engagement with history is generally to kind of play with the possibilities. So as I was reading chapter seven, uh, where where which is the the long story of Suppen's past, I what I, I noticed so he goes to Haiti in the book's time, it's the 1820s. Um, and also, so for instance, it's called Haiti and not the French colony of Saint-Domingue. So it is post-Haitian Revolution. Yet he is like described as being this what like he 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 kind of ascends the class ranks because he's this like effective overseer on this French plantation. Now the, the post uh, the post abolition history of slavery in Haiti is is kind of fraught. Like so, eighteen oh four it's the it's the end of the Haitian Revolution. Slavery is abolished, but like uh, you know, a secession of Haitian leaders did kind of retain a forced labor system to kind of keep the property. But but like to me, this very much read as like French colonial rule. My question is like, okay, Faulkner, I, Megan, I think you said, okay, he was drunk, he made a mistake. <laughs> totally possible. Maybe. But I, but I also wonder, like, so Sutpen, when he goes to, to the West Indies, he's just like, he has almost no education. He doesn't even know where it is, right. right? And also, like, his account of the past, really, we only get, for these moments at least, his narrative of what it is. So, like, I mean, it is like, it's history, but I, it's like the kind of mistake that it's like, wait, are we supposed to not trust this? And also, like, how it's like using sort of historical forms to create this, like, coherent narrative. But then we, like, I don't know, like, it's just again, like, could have totally just been Faulkner uh, making a mistake. But I think for me, it really does raise the question of like, this is kind of like a back formation that is narrated from a future point in time about how we got to this place that may or may not be reliable. You know, I mean, I think that like, I have no idea. Like Faulkner could have messed it up, but like, I think that the the like again, I don't necessarily want to do like canon Faulkner readings, but like the I think most people would say something like oh, well, this is just more evidence that we can't trust any of our narrative points of view here. Right. 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 So, like, whoever this, like, master third person is, is also doing, like, historical fuckery. But that also doesn't make sense because it's not like the Civil War has moved around. And they're actually, like, surprisingly good at dates. 
Yeah, no, they are. They are. For all of the well, like it, other stuff that's like m- not determinate with respect to point of view, they're pretty su- they're pretty consistent with that stuff. Well, and, right. And and I mean, uh, too that like there are historical forces and forms that matter across a large swath of like the novel's time and ones that might matter less right so like the specifics of like dates around like when colonial rule ended in a certain place or you know the haitian revolution which is not really something this novel or the united states for you know it's 220 years 50 years of racist history has known anything about but like what does is sort of important uh or like retains this force is uh like you know something like the construction of whiteness Mm -hmm. and like and like you know uh that you know that the classes uh, like maybe subsur- provided you can get some money subservience to like the production of whiteness right so it's like oh well hmm, it sucks that like San Domingue is no longer around to you know make this coherent story but fuck it it doesn't matter because the right. story I'm telling is like the coherence of like white supremacism right like that that, that oh. that's what he's getting at like he's just he's like casting around for like these things that could have happened in the Caribbean it doesn't matter the date to explain how I like this guy from like this poor ass background in West Virginia yeah. ha- own a hundred fucking square miles of of mississippi and like thousands of enslaved people right i mean i think that what you're suggesting that like i hadn't thought about but really appeals to me is like he has to be an overseer someplace else so he has like an ideological program of like what owning people looks like but it can't be in the u.s right like has to be imported because once it's imported then he and these 20 they're not all men are they the people his enslaved people who build the house from from literally from mud has to be an imported order because it can't yeah. like align with him he can't make his money in the US can he just like for this novel to be coherent no right well cause, yeah because like he he represent like his class background represents a threat whereas if it gets kind of like uh it well it like that, that if, it, if it were like a sort of like originary to the united states would be more threatening mm-hmm. than if we can like cast it as, as coming from someplace else yeah that's right and yeah no right and well and i also think like the frenchness is important right so like uh you know he he hits on uh haiti sending because like uh well so for instance the in early 19th century like to the plantation class in the u.s like the british west indies had become a real threat because like britain was in the process of like abolishing the slave right, trade right. right whereas like whereas like ooh, like the spooky french like that's a, you know that's a different that's a different uh thing yeah it also allows him to send eulalia bon who is the um wife from mm. saint-domingue to mm. New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. So because he, she goes from a French place to a different French place, allowing yeah. him to then like imagine the racial order that's pretty specific to New Orleans. Yes, yeah, and well, and the foreignness of New Orleans is also something that it really wants to lean on, mm-hmm. right? That he's like, it is, it is like this kind of other, yeah, this sort of other, um, but this kind, but I think like this kind of other that sort of tells the white, you know, remnants of the plantation class of the United States really kind of uncomfortable truths about itself, yeah. right? That it's like, you know, it, which is what the, I mean, and that you know, again, like our other conversations about the Gothic, like on the other side of the Atlantic, like that is always a function of this genre. Is it's like. <laughs> It's the other. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, the dumb French, but it's like the other that tells you something uncomfortable about 
the, yourself, right. you know, as, as, a, as the reader of this, this guy. Right. That yeah. the French colonial project is like not better. It just like allow in the story allows us to have like a point of, yeah. of making explicit how somebody can like make their fortune yeah. as, yeah. um, an extraordinarily cruel, violent overseer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess what a question I have for you too, like your, <laughs> the, the thesis that you've uh, presented on the show about like incest being the problem of the, of the American novel. Just saying, um, I, there's like, a lot of them. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. I wonder like how you think, like what, what you think it is doing in this specific context, uh, precisely because of Sutpin's sort of indeterminate or, uh, like kind of class fluidity, right? Like, cause I mean, I think like what, you know, I, I, I something that we see incest representing in a lot of other fiction and, and when the U S it's like, it's the maintenance of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's also like the maintenance of class, right? Like can't fuck outside of the family. Like if right. you start fucking outside of the family, you might start fucking outside of class and that's bad. So let's just keep it within the family. Right. But like Sutpin's own fluidity, like would seem to make that last aspect of it, uh, uh, like harder to sustain or just different. So like, I don't know. I mean, does it then just become like, you know, what we're really back to is like the focus on race and like, that's why it's a pre- like, it's, it's basically trying to like contain within, within uh, like sort of whiteness or like what, yeah, I, I don't know. What are, what are your, what's your take on that? What that's doing here. I, mean, I think that there's a take that presents Faulkner is pretty gross, which is that like, well, because this guy is poor, he oh, he's in a position to have more relationships with black women and that produces children of mixed race backgrounds and that is like an impossible vari- variable to sustaining the family. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that that would be a reading that's too blunt. I think what's happening is that the family in the version of the aristocracy is not sustainable like outside of this story i don't think faulkner thinks that the south can actually like continue this economic model like he thinks it's already dead right so like this version of aristocratic continuation is just like but it's 1936 man if anybody thinks you can keep doing that they are just like a psycho yeah, right, right. And what Faulkner is sort of doing here that's like this this that incest in this is also about miscegenation. It's not always that that way. It's not that way in the Sun and the Fury. But mm. that like sister fucking is the inevitable fallout of the reverse of keeping it in the family. It's that you try to keep it in the family, but that's right. not going to do it. Yeah, right, right. right you're trying well, to make this sustain itself because what you need is sons, but like right. you're fucking your sister means all the sons like you're not going to get anymore or like they're going to kill each other or like the right. the economic order is setting itself up for its own collapse. Yeah. Right. No, definitely. Definitely. Well, and right. And so like there, and yeah, I know that, that, that makes total sense to me. There's also like an interesting sort of suggestion in chapter four on like what drives like Henry and Judith sort of like, you know, uh, like uncomfortably close <laughs> sort of yeah. relationship with each other, which, which is like, I mean, yeah. So like, I mean, I think like from, from the kind of like bird's eye sort of view of like the kind of plantation class, what you said. Yeah, absolutely. But like they're described like, 
like uh, Judith and 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 Henry described uh, uh, that the, like okay so like uh, okay so it, it must have been Henry who seduced Judith not Bond seduced mm-hmm. her along with himself from that distance between Oxford and Sutphin's hundred between herself and the man whom she had not even seen yet as though by some means of telepathy with which as children they seemed at times to anticipate one another's actions as two birds leave a limb at the same instant that rapport not like uh, the conventional delusion of that between twins but rather such as might exist between two people who regardless of sex or age or heritage of race or tongue had been marooned at birth on a desert island the island here Sutton's hundred yeah. the solitude the shadow of that father with whom not only the town but their mother's family as well had merely assumed armistice rather than accepting and assimilating right so like that the, the, the like for them the oh, incest so is like this this sort of like psychological kind of protection again like they're they're like so close because like they're allies against this deeply oppressive and creepy place structure that they have been like produced into you know what yeah, i mean like i agree totally and that the island is also that like if sutpen is gonna strike out all on his own and is gonna like make this mansion himself and like be like i'm gonna own some people and that's gonna be like how i make some money and this plantation's running and like this plantation does work we see no we see no scene of that in the novel we know it happens but that if that's your end right which is like total economic control who the fuck else are these people gonna marry they don't know anybody yeah, right. Exactly. No, yeah, and that, and that's the thing. Like when Henry gets to Oxford, because yeah, well, that's another. It's, it's at the University of Oxford where Charles and uh, University of Oxford. Sorry, it is at Oxford, Mississippi, University of Mississippi yeah. that they meet, which is described as being this like provincial school, like this new kind of provincial school. But even at that sort of, li- so he's not gone off to Harvard, and he's certainly not gone off to like Cambridge and Oxford, as the plantation right. class was also fond of doing. But like even in that sort of more like quote unquote provincial setting, he's still like this boob. Like he's you know, oh, there's totally. these fancy people from new orleans who have seen the world and like all he's seen is like and, and, you know the novel describes it as such like country square dances and shit you know <laughs> so. well and there are still i mean and i know that this is like a historical fact but you couldn't violate it in this novel that like there are no women there no 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 no. that's right there are that's no right. women yeah. at harvard either for what it's worth <laughs> but no, right. uh but in 1920 there are women at, he could find yeah. women if yeah. quentin cared to do that but like it's total economic psychological racialized incestual isolation no totally and i mean i think that like don't get me wrong like in you know modern like gross ass agribusiness there are massive fucking farms in this country they are not like you know farms owed by one family like a hundred square miles is a massive amount of land so much and they are the own, like, because we're only allowed to, like, have, rela- you know, marry and have relations within our own, like, race in this fucking asshole place. Um, like, yeah, right. It's like, it's these two white kids in this giant yeah. swath of, like, northern Mississippi is like, yeah, right. It's like, yeah, I mean, it is kind of like being on a desert island or in a foreign country, you know, like, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, and it has to be that way again for, like, for this economic system to function as the book thinks it does, yeah, right? It absolutely. has to be in isolation. No, no, I, I completely agree. You know, it's not like they go to fancy balls because they're not really fancy, right? Like they're not part of the aristocratic landed class that's been there since forever, which by the way, Faulkner doesn't really have yeah. in this book. 
No, he does. No, right. Like that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that is what they, that like, like, uh, when, when Sutpen and Ellen marry, they get like vegetables thrown at them because the town's like, who is yeah. this? Like, this basically this bandit that showed up. And, but then, like, but, yeah, exactly. But then there's this great lie that like he was rich enough now that he couldn't be ignored anymore. Right. Like, so, right. so he does, like, he, we sort of over the course of the novel see him like sort of like produce himself as this member of this class. And then, like, Almost as soon as he's arrived, of course, the war happens and undercuts like all of it. But yeah, like the yeah, exactly. So, but it is. I mean, San Francisco is like fifty square miles. Like to put that in context for you, listener. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he, he they, they, their, their land is twice the size of San Francisco. Of the entire city of San Francisco. Yeah, anyway. it's it's absolutely wild. I mean, and I think. That one of the things it's weird to say, like, this is what I love about this book, but like that the incest question and the race question are not separable from each other because they are both uh, social uh, creations. What? That put pressure on the possibility of rich families making more of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah. And exactly. I think that that's like part of why I love this book so much that that is like, but also that you know, the risk of sounding like a dick. I like Faulkner so much because the way he writes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that embarrassing? Probably a little. No, it's not. I mean, no, like <laughs> it's, we should not let academia convince us that we can't like something just because it's good. You know? Right. I mean, we also shouldn't let academia convince us that we should or shouldn't like stuff. We should only let us remind us that like, well, we I don't like Robinson Crusoe, but like a person can like it even though it's like bad and nuts. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. No, totally. Well, it also I was like I like that I like Robinson Crusoe to me is you know, you you hate like something, right? It's totally. like it's so crazy and it lets me have so many thoughts about like all this fucked up shit and like its origins that's what i like about it like the what it, its ideology is like okay. fucking dumb i mean yeah you know anyway so we're playing a game that's barely a game uh we are going to do entrance into the grand hall of sister fuckers yes Definitely yes. We we a slightly abbreviated game since our 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 comic writer our comedy our writer comedy. is off this week. Yeah, the um yeah. the true heroine of the pod. Um, yeah. So, do you have an initiate initiate? Yes, I do. So I, I you know, we, I, I was just thinking, like, God, we, you know, we, we have I, like it's incest stories are really right up there with the fail son. I mean, you know, follow the house of Usher, right? <laughs> like that was a good way. I we just shit just a few weeks ago, Rappuccini's daughter, which is which is father daughter uh, mm-hmm. incest fantasy. Uh, there, you know, there, there's there's a ton that that we've uh, we, we've done on the show. Uh, but I actually am going to so, a, a novel that I love, and I know we've we have uh we have had a request for this a while ago on on twitter twitter.com to do herman melville's uh a pierre or the ambiguities um it is we're not going to do melville than dead we are committed to herman melville it is and we have attracted uh like what uh, melville fans uh katie and i have read it megan i don't think you have right i have not Okay, so uh, I don't know I don't why I burned all that time reading The Confidence Man when I should have been reading Pierre. <laughs> I don't think that we will do it next season because uh, I think we're gonna uh, we're pro- we're probably doing Lolita right as as the, as the, the double yeah. Next season. yeah. 
but uh, probably the season after. I think Katie is going to do Pierre with us. And yeah, so uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about what Pierre was. Uh, Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick, which is amazing. Critics at the time who were dumb and still are were like, this this is a stupid book about whales. So he got mad. It makes no sense. And he was like, oh, oh, th- was this real too real for you assholes? I'm going to write a 50,000 page novel about a Dutch aristocrat American guy who uh, marries his, and bangs his uh, probably half sister who mysteriously arrives, moves to New York City and winds up in a polycule with the blonde woman that he was supposed to marry originally. What the fuck do you think about that? 1852? <laughs> <laughs> it is just it is just such an amazing screed about like the bullshitness of like America's like kind of faux aristocracy but also like the fucking weird ass like conduits of desire in the human psyche it's um it is like Melville at his craziest and I mean he, not at his best because that's like Moby Dick and Benito Cerrito but pretty fucking close to his best <laughs> like, but Melville even at his half best is still Herman Melville Yes. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I am very much looking forward to do Pierre. It is probably my favorite American incest uh, novel. So. Well, I'm going to go with another entrant, which is Gene Stafford's, I think 1945, I'd have to check, novel, The Mountain Lion, which was recently republished by the New York Review of Books Press. And it is amazing in which a young girl and her brother are sent to live with their uncle on a a range where they hunt shit and there is a scene in which the brother has a fantasy they have two older sisters who are fluffy bunny girls and we never see them (laughs) but he has a scene where he fantasizes about licking one of their foreheads (laughs) and licking her brain it's uh, yeah cool it's a very very normal all the way totally normal and then at the end of that book he shoots the sister we care about dead in the forehead because he has mistaken her for the mountain lion which is their highly sexualized prey throughout the novel wow i have i i have never read that one you would love it Um, it's so good Okay, so I assume we're doing that on the show oh, at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and when I told my undergraduates, like, yeah, I mean, it's like fucked up and sad, but he really wanted to like penetrate his sister's head. Like he wanted to fuck his sister's head and they were angry. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it sounds deeply upsetting. I it's super upsetting. <laughs> but, but no, yeah, I, I could totally see an undergrad be like, I wasn't quite ready for this turn in, the, in this literature course. and then i told my i took i taught it again in an ma class that was about i actually taught epsilon epsilon too that was about um critical debates in the u.s mid-century and i was like well we'd already read epsilon epsilon so they were primed but i was like oh yeah he like fucks his sister in the head with a bullet and they were like oh yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no problems there <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm definitely looking forward um, to that. Uh, so give us oh, one yeah, more one, entrant. 
Oh, give us one more entrant. Well, okay. So, I mean, I, I actually will go back to one that uh, we did before. And actually, Megan, I, this was this was one of the episodes when you were on maternity leave. But uh, but Hamlet is kind of an OG and the sort of like oh, yeah. uh, early modern on canon story. Uh, not not brother sister, but but mother son. And I will say, uh, I mean, Mel Gibson is insane. Uh, <laughs> his movies mm-hmm. are very weird and uh dis- disturbing um i do think that like his hamlet though it, it really really does draw out that uh that valence of that play but which is so fucking there i mean oh, you know there's yeah. no question like i mean his like his hamlet's like just fucking fixation with uh with with gertrude's but i mean it is like he's kind of mad about the fact that his dad got killed but he's really mad about the fact that his mom is now banging his it's the most transparently you know? edible play like there are still things i read and my students are like why is that edible and i'm like i never mind (laughs) i mean yeah well i mean read read freud who thought hamlet was fucking fascinating as hell right Right, exactly um yeah hamlet's good i am conflicted i have i actually have like a list of brother of sister fucking entrance um because of course i do Sound and the Fury is probably my favorite. Still going to tag yeah. that. I'm going to tag the Nabokov novel Lolita, which is only for Nabokov stands. Am I one? Yeah. Am I embarrassed about it? For sure. Um, <laughs> but probably I'm just going to drop in John Sayles' movie Lone Star, in which the characters end up together happily, who are brother and sister. And okay. it rules. Yeah. Because that's also okay. a miscegenation problem, like that they mm. uh, learn that their brother and sister are late in the book because there's like a because they're he's white and she has a white father and a Mexican American Mexican mother, and mm. that this is like the thing that's keeping them from being a couple. And it's like turns out that like it's the opposite of Absalom Absalom. Mm-hmm. Okay, that the crisis okay. should be that they're siblings, but it's like less a crisis because of this racial barrier and um right. that's much more interesting and i think it's great and also john sales totally fucking rules uh, it's something else i have to say <laughs> do a john sales film festival start with brother from another planet he's very good cool yeah i mean you know with 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 uh with with quarantine certainly have time time to do some deep dives into film. i mean i don't think this is also gonna like give you any it's it 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 will actually be fun it's not gonna send you into any like oh why is she making me read see this boring ass movie about the chicago black socks well <laughs> different movies well, than these ones yeah yeah i mean i the chicago black socks is, is absolutely fascinating uh i but i i will sorry i one thing eight I, men I, out I, it's the movie yeah. Eight, yes. Yeah. 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 I've seen. Oh, yeah. I've seen Eight Men Out with uh, Frazier's dad as the team manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, That's John Sales. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I want. I think I, I, I. Not to steal Katie's thunder for when we finally do Pierre, but I just do want to say that one of the reviews of the novel published, in, I think, the New York Post, with uh, <laughs> 1850s, very different era. The headline was Herman Melville crazy. <laughs> Oh, it's true, but we love it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's also like, so you're saying just like Herman Melville is crazy, leaving out the verb, or you're inventing an adjective. It's like, oh, that's Herman Melville crazy, you know. Or there's a third version, which is Herman Melville crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> is this Herman Melville? Because that's crazy. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you. That's like very good. So this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywa. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod and email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you too have entrance into the Hall of Fame of Sister Fuckers and they must be literary characters and not IRL people. We are going to insist upon that. But this is <laughs> yes. fake. They must be fake people. Yes, this is. Yes, uh, absolutely. Don't go crazy. Don't be my undergraduates. Yeah. Our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins, used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We need it. Love it. We still have stickers and buttons. And next week, we are wrapping up season three with a recap episode. Who knows what'll happen? It'll probably be a little off the trail, but we love it. So thanks, comrades. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul.